0: We've had bad presidents in the U.S. before. We've had people who didn't care about the rules like Andrew Johnson. We've had outrageous populists and nationalists like Andrew Jackson. We've had out-and-out racists in the 20th century like Woodrow Wilson. We've had audacious lawbreakers like Richard Nixon. Maybe none of them has the complete package the way that Mr. Trump (laughs) has the complete package. But the good thing about a democratic system is that it it is self-correcting, which is why the system itself is so important. know, it's it's that moment where people stop thinking about the system and only think about the person that you're done for.
1: I'm Perry Rogers, and I'm a brand specialist. I'm Ed Borgato, and I'm an investor. And our conversations are about the tension between the head and the heart in the way people make decisions and their point of view on important issues. This is The Head and the Heart.
2: Welcome, everyone, to The Head and the Heart. This is
1: Perry Rogers. And this is Ed Borgato.
2: Remember that our show is available on Spotify, Podcast One, and Apple Podcasts. This week, we're going to be talking to Timothy Snyder. He's an historian at Yale University. Uh, He's a permanent fellow at the Institute for Human Sciences in Vienna. He's written five books that have been published, one that will be coming out next month. And one of them is on tyranny, which you and I both loved love and then his next one is our malady which is coming out as i said later actually later this month Uh, he's just a a fascinating thought leader talk a little bit about how you became acquainted with him and what interested you in him
1: so around the time of the impeachment hearings i uh i stumbled across a quote of his um that really left an impression on me which i want to ask him about and uh I made me want to figure out who this guy was, and then I started to i looked him up on the internet and 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 saw that he'd written this book on tyranny, and I read a little bit about it, and I thought, well, that's a book I really want to read, and since I have read it, as you know, because I've been quoting passages to you, I've become kind of a fanboy I mean, I'm really, really impressed with this little book I mean it's a very quick and simple read, and it's broken down into twenty easy chapters, short chapters that address lessons from history, um, the 20th century, where Europe was really overcome by authoritarianism and what happened to those populations, what happened to those people. And when you read on tyranny, the thing that really leaves a mark on your mind is the realization that these things, you know, aren't just abstractions from a history book. They're real things that happen to real people and that it can happen again, the democracies require, you know, active um, effort um, and participation and a commitment to the truth for people not to fall into the, these 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 holes. And um, yeah, it really left an impression on me.
2: Yeah. I, what I was fascinated by is how vulnerable we actually all are to buying into fascism or a form of tyranny that You just wouldn't think that you'd buy into. But we're all convinced that we're independent beings and clear on what good looks like and what bad looks like. But the truth of it is power uh, can corrupt. And when it corrupts and there aren't checks and balances to protect us from that power running amok, we're vulnerable. No one signs up and says, yeah, I'm going to believe in a fascistic government. Uh, And yet uh, it's been done throughout history and what we have had the benefit of, and you and I were talking about this earlier, we've had the benefit during our lives, we're each 51 years old, uh, we've had the benefit of really having a clear foil, a clear opponent, which was communism, fascism, the Soviet Union. But when the Soviet Union fell and when the Eastern Bloc fell over the last 30 years, we've become numb to what an opponent looks like. And as a result, we've maybe opened the back door for something to enter that we never would have perceived when you and I were in our 20s.
1: Yeah, I mean, we live in a country now that seems so polarized. There's actual instances right now of political violence on the street, people losing their life literally because of a difference in point of view on politics. And You know, I suppose here and there, we've always experienced this sort of thing. You know, in 1968, you know, you had those sort of events happening on American streets. But I think people are sort of shocked that it's come back again. I guess it was shocking for those back then. But in 1968, you were living in a world where, you know, there was World War II veterans living amongst us. The memories of World War II were very fresh. You know, it was only 25 years earlier that the war ended in equivalent time, this goes back to the mid nineties for us. And so it was all very fresh, um, but we're experiencing something else right now. And I I, reading the book, what I thought about a lot was what it is people will tolerate from leaders What people will tolerate that they wouldn't have thought they would have tolerated if you described it to them, you know, two years ago, four years ago, six years ago, um, what they're willing to tolerate and how, you know, they let little things slip, And then a little bit larger things slip and you become so invested in defending your team or your candidate or your particular ideology that the things you will tolerate from those on your team, uh, your standards start to fall.
2: Yeah, I mean, this goes back to what we've been saying that there's this binary choice that we all have in life, which is identity or accountability. And what's fascinating in our country is that identity has become a more important social moray than government accountability. And so you'll see those two older gentlemen at a 2016 Trump rally wearing a shirt that says, I'd rather be a Russian than a Democrat. And so identity uh, is more important to them than the accountability of our own government. You know, a two-party system clearly they're at odds on issues, but they're not at odds on purpose. And that's where we find ourselves today is that not celebrating or supporting a two-party system, and he talks about this in, on tyranny, uh, not supporting that puts us at odds on our purpose. You, you love to talk about a Reagan quote about that very
1: issue. Well, yeah, we were talking about this earlier, that Reagan famously admonished some of his aides to, um, uh, saying that, you, reminding them, we don't have enemies. What we have is political opponents. And it's something I want to ask Professor Snyder about, you know, whether or not he thinks you know, a good deal of what we're going through in this country today is partially because we don't feel as if we have that common enemy That we did during the Cold War. It was so clear in that struggle against East and West when you know the the Soviets were were an active nuclear threat, and the the clear distinction between markets and capitalism and socialism, uh, democracy versus communism. it, it, It those lines were so clearly drawn, and the world it seems you know post Cold War. You know we had the period in the '90s where. The United States really experienced that peace dividend. You know, the the Eastern Bloc had fallen, and our economy was very strong, and we were very uh, united—or not more typically divided than it. I should say, uh, which feels more united compared to today.
2: Yeah, I think that you know, for me, from the marketing side of it, what interests me is that by losing those clear lines. And having a more amorphous shape of uh, our domestic policy and our foreign policy, um, it's allowed for foreign actors to slow us down. And what's been disappointing is that we haven't united around the idea. You know, you have President Trump in 2016 asking Russia, if you're listening, you will be rewarded if you find her emails. And that alone should have put an end to the entire campaign, no matter what. You know, we're 5% of the world's population. We're 30% of the world's GDP. Russia is 1.2% of the world's GDP. There is no growth plan that they're going to be able to initiate that will allow them to catch us. But there is a different plan, which is to slow us down, to get us divided, to get us fighting with ourselves where we think that Russia is a better option than the other political party. Those are the things that they have worked hard from a marketing standpoint. And you see it all in the Senate uh, intelligence report that came out just last week, which walked everyone through Russia's concentrated engagement
1: in slowing down the growth of the United States and changing us from within yeah i mean the it needs to be an asymmetric attack it's, that's the only way they can win they they can't equal us economically or militarily um but in many ways it's 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 much more insidious what they're doing than a straight on you know hot war you know military type attack i mean this is mo- much more foundational and it's working it's working you know you point out that the candidate for president in in 2016 literally and publicly asked for russian assistance in uh getting material on his opponent i wonder right now what the consequences would be if joe biden were to give a speech and say china are you listening uh whatever material you have on donald trump we we'd like to have it that's right would there be consequences or is this now the norm Our guest today is Professor Timothy Snyder. He's an
2: American author and historian specializing in the history of Central and Eastern Europe and the Holocaust. He's the Richard C. Levin Professor of History at Yale University and a permanent fellow at the Institute for Human Sciences in Vienna. Snyder is a member of the Council on Foreign Relations and the Committee on Conscience of the United States Holocaust Memorial Museum, He's written six books. His next book, "Our Malady," will be out later this month. Welcome, Professor. Thank you. Very glad I can talk to you.
1: So, um, Professor, it's really nice to meet you. Around the time of I first heard about you, around the time of the impeachment hearings, uh, I come across a quote of yours that caught my attention that made me want to learn about who said it. And it was—I'll um, read it. I'll read it for our audience and, and for you to know what I'm referring to. You said, "Do not break the rules that hold a republic together, because one day you will need order. And do not destroy the opponents who respect those rules, because one day you will miss them." And that really left an impression on me, particularly with what was going on in the news at that time. Um, and I just wanted to know if you wouldn't mind talking a little bit about what inspired that um, and and elaborate on that thought.
0: Well, fundamentally that's about what it's, what it's like to be an enlightened person. So, I mean, if, if you're not an enlightened person, then you can think that, Politics is just about what you can grab. Life is just about what you can take. The rules are just there to be broken. You know, the rules are just a trap for the people who aren't as smart as as you are. But an enlightened form of politics says, you know, my interests aren't the only interests. I have friends. I have children. They're, the other person's interests aren't the only interests. He's got friends and children. There are various groups those groups can't finally be reconciled. We're all going to do better if we can somehow keep together an order, which is based upon this thing, which we call the rule of law. And the thing about the rule of law is that it's partly it's a practice. It's how you do things, but also partly it's belief. I mean, almost it's faith. I have to, I have to, I have to take for granted just a little bit that other people are going to behave lawfully if I'm going to behave lawfully. And so if you get a bad actor in the middle of that, um, that bad actor can do an awful amount of damage because a bad actor can say, well, I don't believe in this stuff. And once a bad actor someone who's important, like a president does that, then other people stop believing in it. And then when enough of us don't believe in it, it becomes harder for other people to to believe in it. And so I guess the point I was trying to make is that If at a critical moment you you do away with the rules that hold things together, that might feel like the right thing to do at the time. It might even feel really good to do that. But down the road, either you or or, or people you care about or generations to come are gonna suffer because of
2: that. And so when you look at your expertise, really studying uh, Eastern Europe, fascism, authoritarianism, uh, where do you see us currently in that spectrum? Where, where are we on that journey or near that journey or moving in that journey? Given that, you know, for you to put that out there, that quote, uh, it means it to me, it means that you think that we're, we're somewhere on that journey for direction.
0: Sure.
2: Yeah. I mean, so
0: uh, uh, let me start in the, let me start with the idea of American exceptionalism. I, I, we're, we're a big country. We're, we're a country where a lot of things have happened. We've exercised a lot of power, especially recently. And in the last 20 years, we've also pulled away from the world intellectually, morally. So we we, we tend to think everything that happens happens here, or the only things that matter happen here. And it's, it's a second thought at best for us, what happened in the past and what happened to to other people. So when w- I try to keep my own American exceptionalism at the realm of sentiment, so America is an exceptional country for me because it's my country and because I love it and because I care about it, but I'm under no illusion that it's special in the sense that the regular rules of history don't apply to it. So as as a historian of the things that you talk about, as a historian of, of Europe and Eastern Europe in the 20th century, I'm, I'm aware of the things that people can do and can be done to people, that, that people not so different from us can do and the things that can happen to people who are not so different from us. But also as, as somebody who spends a lot of time beyond the US, I, I'm also aware that you know, there are places like like Russia today, which I know well, or Belarus, which I know well, where um, things happen in our own moment, which we might find shocking, but suddenly they're not so shocking because they're not really so so far away. So I guess what I want to say is that um, I don't see America as being a, a side and apart from history, and I don't see it as being a side and apart from Eastern Europe. Our, our our president is in fact a very Russian <laughs> kind of or post Soviet kind of figure. And his instincts about how politics work, the idea that everything is transactional, you're either winning or you're losing. The rules are for, you know, the rules are for the losers and the suckers. That's a very Russian post-Soviet way of, of, of seeing the world. So I think America was a, you know, America was a flawed democracy in 2016, and it's moved pretty quickly in the direction of authoritarianism since 2016. I guess the 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 thing that i don't like about you know asking where is the line or like where are we going is that so much of it depends on what we actually do you know like that's really clear i think in the time between now and the election but it's also it's also it's also very clear i worry a little bit that americans that they we play this as a kind of spectator sport right so we go first we're like we're shocked oh things are happening in america that we only kind of vaguely remember from history in other countries. And then, and then we say, wow, like, let's look at that and be surprised by it. And by the time we've looked at it and are surprised by it, it's already moved on to the next thing. So, you know, I I think engagement's
1: really important. And when you talk about American exceptionalism, you know, we've been hearing that phrase, you know, for, for decades. And I think it means different things to different people. And I'm glad that you draw the distinction, you know, I think to a lot of people's ears when you hear American exceptionalism, the thought is, well, we're the best. We're the most exceptional. When really I think your framing is better. You know, it's, it's exceptional because it's my country. It's where I'm from. And, and I, I've had this experience in my own life. You know, I'm an immigrant and came to the country, came to the United States when I was a kid. So I've had the advantage of traveling abroad when I was very young And where I'm from, which is Brazil, I remember visiting in the 1980s uh, when I was, you know, a teenager and and a little younger than that even. And it was very clear how different my cousins and family members were living Mm -hmm. in southern Brazil compared to how I was living In the United States, you know, just the differences in really the most superficial ways, you know, the toys, the electronic handheld games that I had that were so fascinating to my cousins or just the kinds of choices of restaurants and and just general life. One of the things I've noticed, you know, in traveling abroad now over really the past, you know, decade, 15 years, the differences in the way people are living is, is not as wide as they once were. You know, countries have caught up in terms of just the basic. Um, I mean, of course, there are exceptions. There's places that, you know, are very impoverished and there's, you know, you, you can find exceptions to that. But I'm talking about a, a, in, in the, speaking specifically about Brazil and other large, large cities I've been to in the Middle East and, and in Europe. You know, people are, are sharing kind of living in much closer um, to the lifestyle that the, that Americans are living and this idea that we're so exceptional or things here are so much better. Um, it's kind of a lazy way to think about it. Yes. 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 Go ahead. Go ahead. Well, it's kind of a, you know, like I said, I think it's, I think it's a very lazy way to think about it. Mm -hmm. Um, because the world has been changing and and growing and we have become more globalized and the internet's a big part of that. You know, I went to a hotel in Uruguay some years ago and it felt like just a perfect knockoff of a a, a hotel in Santa Monica that I had stayed at design. I even went on the internet and look, boy, these people down in Uruguay, this little boutique hotel just knocked off everything from this well-known hotel in Santa Monica. Mm -hmm. I just, it's, it's sort of, these things can be superficial, but it's also kind of important to recognize that the world has changed and the United States isn't the center of it.
0: Yeah. That, so a lot, a, lot of, a lot of thoughts you, you provoke with that. I mean, I, I, really, I really don't like this response to, 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 to challenges that, that one gets from Americans where, where we just say, we have the greatest X and Y because you know sometimes we do right we've got the greatest professional basketball league and sometimes we don't we, we don't have the greatest medical system and when when corona started there were these statements of faith basically made over mass media that well we've got the greatest medical system in the world but we don't it's not even close and that reflex that like whatever it is, we must already be the best at it sets you up for failure because you think, okay, well, no one is doing this better than we are. And therefore, whatever we're doing is going to be right. And even if we fail, it, it can't be our fault because we're the, be- we're the best at this. Um, so one of the problems I see, you know, it's, it, it's true as you say that, that in a lot of ways there's, there's been this harmonization. But as that's happened, I think Americans have missed um, noticing places where other countries actually do things better than we do, right? I mean, to take another painful example, what about democracy? It's it's tough for Americans to think that Amer- that other people might do democracy better than we do. But in a lot of ways, in a lot of places, folks do. I mean, there are places with higher turnouts. There are places with fewer voter suppression laws. There are places that do a lot better job with, with money and politics, and I think if, you know, if, if you're serious about competition, um, you have to look at what the other people are actually doing. And I think at a certain point, we took a wrong turn with competition and we started just thinking, well, America equals the best. And once you think that, you know, people slip right by you. And I mean, we're, we're talking during this coronavirus pandemic and I mean, I, I, I'm in a position you know, to look at what the pandemic looks like in other countries. And boy, it's, it can be like night and day, you know, there, there are places where, and, and, or to put it a different way, there are a lot of places looking at, there are a lot of countries looking at us now in horror and it's not anti-Americanism, you know, it's yeah. pity, right? It's just, it's pity.
1: There's a great essay that was just written by uh, an Irish author that whose name escapes me. I wish I, I had it uh, uh, at the tip of my um, brain right now, but he describes all the different ways in which America has been viewed by the world and some positive, some negative. Uh, but the one thing he says, the world has never felt the one emotion, the world has never felt about the United States is pity until now. Yeah.
0: And it, unfortunately, that's, I wonder if that was spent to No Tool. Um, unfortunately, um, that, or I wonder who that was, but it, unfortunately that's true. I, I say, unfortunately, not because pity is a bad thing, but because you don't want to be, you don't want to be the object of it. But unfortunately it's true. I mean, other places don't, other places don't have mass graves and, yeah. and other places, you know, other democracies might have leaders that are that are that are annoying, but I, I don't know of any other countries. You know, or I don't know of any other Western developed democracies where people look at their leaders and say, you know, that this th- our leader just let us die on the scale of hundreds of thousands for 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 no for no reason at all. So I mean, I guess the problem going back to the idea of American exceptionalism, the problem is that American exceptionalism can turn around on you, and you you can if you think you're the greatest for long enough, you, 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 you lose your place, you fall behind, and then you start making excuses for yourself and you're out of the habit of learning from other people. You know, I, it's not a real popular thing in the U S now to say, well, okay, we failed. Let's look and see how Canada did. Um, or let's, let's look and see how, how Denmark did, you know, um, I mean, in Denmark life, people are living longer, than they were a year ago
1: <laughs> yeah this com- the, this complacency of, of we're the best and just assuming that we've got it figured out it, it really does it does hurt us it's it's you know it's not enough to chant USA in a football stadium I mean that's not exceptional and that that doesn't make a, it true I, I'm curious what you find in Europe with respect to people wearing masks and adhering to public health policy. Um, it seems that there's a significant amount of Americans that are just so defiant about following these protocols and they're proud of their defiance because they they, they, they couch it in uh, preserving their freedoms and standing up for their freedoms. And so that defiance is something that they take pride in. And I'm wondering if you encounter that in Europe or how you sort of diagnose that in the United States and where that comes from.
0: Yeah. I mean, in, in, in the I I think sometimes we have some trouble thinking deeply about freedom and then we can confuse freedom with the thing that I feel like doing right now. (laughs) And very often like the thing that I feel like doing, and you, you guys know this much better than me because of your, your, your respective lines of work. But very often the thing that I feel like doing right now has been set up for me in some way. Right. And I mean, you take the example of masks. Uh, there's a very, you know, there's a very high and 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 noticeable relationship between what people see on the internet and their attitude towards masks. So, is that really their free decision, or are they being set up by people, perhaps by people who are, you know, deliberately trying to cause trouble and don't actually care about what happens to those who are not wearing masks? Another thing I think we miss or, or, or we've, we've lost quite a bit in our discussions of freedom is the importance of truth. Uh, it's, you can't, you can't really be free if you're deceived. If someone is in a position to deceive you, that person is in a position to make you unfree. And w- when we shift, as I think we suddenly are shifting in, in the country towards saying like, I don't care if it's true or not. It's, it's what I feel very strongly right now. And you have to respect what I feel very strongly then basically you're saying you don't care about your own freedom you know you might feel like you're acting freely but if you don't care about the way the world really is what you're doing is you're giving power to the illusionists you're giving the power you're choosing to give power to the people who can who can fool you there's that's the equation there's no way there's no way out of that equation so when i you know when i look at when i look at that in the us I, i think about those things and i also i also think about you know i also think about rights i mean it's just it's a very classic you know old-fashioned formulation but you know your right to punch me ends where my nose begins and your are right you know your right to breathe infectious materials also ends where my lungs begin
1: yeah.
0: um, and so if i you know if you believe in freedom you have to believe in human freedom and not just my freedom but everybody's freedom and then you have to think about what what choices that's that's going to involve in, in Europe, this stuff is, is, looks looks very different. Um, the, the, the masks are politicized here, but it's like, you know, it's one or two percent instead of 30 it's, percent. It's marginal. People who are on, you know, people who, who, who have far right views um, in Austria, where I am now, are wearing masks. You know, it's not, it's not, it's not seen as a political issue the way it is in, in the U.S., and I mean, you know, I, I think, I think there are issues. I mean, I think among other things, there's some, there's some issues of masculinity going into this as well. Like some, some issues of self-confidence, you know, am I, am I so worried about my manhood that I, I'm not going to feel like a man if I, if I wear this thing, you know, that's and, interesting. and it's uh, and that, that's, you know, and that also kind of gives me pause. It makes me worry.
2: Yeah, you know, you, you write in here and I, I want to, want to understand from you where you think this is going. So I'll read you a little bit of your writing and then ask you this question. The president is a nationalist, which is not at all the same thing as a patriot. A nationalist encourages us to be our worst and then tells us we're the best. Nationalism is relativist, since the only truth is the resentment we feel when we contemplate others. And my question for you is, as we have moved down the road to freely elect a nationalist, I'm just wondering whether there's an example of a government or of a people that have been able to avoid the next step of authoritarianism or fascism and turn it around, or if history is littered with the same pattern of going from nationalism and the other is the problem to fascism and only they can solve it.
0: So I'm going, to give you a, I'm going to give you a mostly dark, but not entirely dark answer. So th- and it, it, this is it's a great line of questioning because it goes, it goes back to all the things we were talking about, about American exceptionalism. I mean, we, we would like to think that our democracy is somehow out of time, right? It's out of place. It's just there. You know, America's a democracy. Democracy is America. And that's all there is to be said. But in fact, democracy is a really challenging form. I mean, I think it's the most attractive and the best, but it's a really challenging form of government. And- It usually fails. You know, I mean, we celebrate the the democracy, of the ancient Greeks, but, you know, the ancient Greeks that we respect the most basically thought that democracy was untenable. Um, We, you know, we we, we like the Renaissance, but the Renaissance was a bunch of tyrannical city states. Uh, The French Revolution didn't turn out so well. Either you know, and all those nice new democracies that were founded after the First World War, most of them failed. A lot of the nice ones that were founded after 1989 or 1991, after the end of communism, have also failed. Um, democracy is is has been fading for the last 13 or 14 years on us in our country and around the world. So yes. Um, it very often is the case that if you if you get the if you elect the wrong person, the person who doesn't care about the rules, to go back to an earlier question, and the person who appeals to our worst instincts, um, which is yeah, which is precisely nationalism, you get to feel like you're the best when you're behaving at your worst, which of course is very very attractive in a certain way. Um, that very often does lead to regime change, but it does not have to. We've had we've had bad presidents in the U.S. before we've had we've had people who didn't care about the rules like like Andrew Johnson Um, we've had outrageous populists and nationalists like Andrew Jackson we've had out and out racists in the 20th century like like Woodrow Wilson we've had audacious lawbreakers like like Richard Nixon Maybe none of them has the complete package the way that Mr. Trump has the complete package. But the good thing about a democratic system is that it, it is correct. It's self-correcting, which is why I mean, to go back to your very first question, which is why the system itself is so important. You know, it's it's that moment where people stop thinking about the system and only think about the person that you're done for.
1: What would you say to someone, you know, who who has people in their lives, friends and- Difficulty understanding that the system is bigger than the person; that the institutions of our democracy matter; that our norms, that our traditions of democracy, are as important as anything else. The way we behave, you know. I love this other quote of yours um, from from On Tyranny: "Life is political, not because the world cares about how you feel, but because the world reacts to what you do. The minor choices." we make are themselves a kind of vote. What can people do? How should they show up in their democracy to make it better?
0: Yeah. I mean, I think that's the the, the, the answer is in the question itself, that if if you you can't actually tell people to care about democracy, you know, it's not Mm -hmm. like, you know, I can't even get my kid to use his fork in the right way. You can't, you can't just tell people to do things. Um, You know, you have, you have to imagine that if you do them yourself, and you show a certain amount of toughness about them, um, that that will make a difference over the long run. So I think I think I think the idea of modeling democracy is very important because Americans have this notion that democracy you know just comes to us from God or from a clear blue sky or from the market or some other abstraction, and it it doesn't. Democracy only comes when people care about civic life, which means that. Everybody has to lean out of their own skin just a little bit. You know, everyone has to care about the truth just a little bit. You know, everyone has to nudge other people to vote just a little bit. Um, everyone has to be just a little bit more, a little bit more civic and a little bit less private. If you really want to have a democracy, if we all just fall back into our private interests, you know, which is what the president models in a kind of, kind of very high level. You know, the only thing that matters is me. Um, if we all fall back into that, we can't actually have a democracy. A democracy is not about everybody in their own inclinations and feelings. A democracy is about recognizing that we all have inclinations and feelings and that we use facts and reason to find ways so that more of us can, 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 can get our inclinations and feelings in, in ways that we want them to be. So I think, you know, you can't really tell people, hey, you know, go read the Constitution. Um, I mean, I think it'd be a good thing if we had civics in, in school rooms again. I think it'd be a good thing if people did read the Constitution in schools. But I think I think that kind of patient repeated, you know, advocacy, which takes the form of what you actually do, is the most important
1: thing. I wanted to ask you something real quick, but I'm curious, how are your students, kids 19, 22, right now responding to, you know, your conversations about democracy and what it means and, you know, civic responsibility and whatnot?
0: Well, one thing, so so first of all, I, I owe a lot to my students because when when the 2016 election went the way that it did, they asked me to say what I thought about it. And I said, okay, I'll say what I think about it, but I'm not going to do it in class because that wouldn't be appropriate. Um, But if you, if you will set up a lecture, you know, and we think of a title and some other, in some other venue, then, then I'll do it. And, uh, and that's, that's, in that talk, I thought up the ideas of politics of eternity and politics of inevitability and, and a lot of the things that ended up wrapping around on tyranny. Um, So, you know, I, I appreciate my students for helping me. I also appreciate that they give me space in the classroom. So they don't say, you know, Professor Snyder here, I'm in office hours. Let's immediately talk about politics. You know, they might, they might at the end of the day, or they might, at the end of the set, or they might say, let's have lunch and talk about something else, right? But they, they're very mature about accepting that I'm, you know, we're teaching East European history or we're teaching this, or we're teaching that. And, it's, and and not everything boils down to the moment, right? Mm. And, and they're right about that. They're correct about that. And I I, I, I appreciate that. I appreciate that they, they have the sense that like, that the, the politics of the moment are very important and, but also learning our history is very important and we're not going to necessarily mix those, mix those things up. But I think that, I think they're just, I mean, I think they there, they were very disoriented in 2016. I think eight years of Obama was very disorienting because as one of the smartest kids I know said, um, I grew up with Obama and I thought the only problem in the world was global warming. <laughs> right. And, uh, and, and then, you know, so then what do you do? Like your, all your entire conscious life from when you're 10 to 18 is Obama and you, and you think, okay, there, there's this big long-term problem, but you're not, Obama's kind of lulled you to sleep. Um, not him personally also, but this idea of the whole, the, the idea that we have a black president has lulled a lot of people to sleep. Right. And then, but I think in 2020, between 2016 and 2020 uh, the, they've gotten, they've gotten a lot tougher and I, I've seen, I've seen a lot, I've seen more as time passed, I've seen more and more activism from, from my students and they've they got, they've gotten better and better at asking questions and partly it's the Trump administration, but also it's partly just the way that life for their generation keeps not getting better. Mm-hmm. You know, when they, when they look out at the future, it really doesn't look good.
1: Yeah, yeah. They, they don't, they have a hard time relating to this period of time where the phrase American sexualism became cemented yeah you know they're they're like well wait a minute what
2: yeah
0: yeah, yeah. And that's, i mean that's a good thing i mean some of the some of that open i mean we need some of that openness right especially in our history of race where because the american exceptionalism is 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 it goes in lockstep with the idea that um white people did a lot of great stuff and you know americans did great stuff or didn't do great stuff but you, the idea that like white people did some great stuff and other people kind of messed it up it, that's an implicit narrative, of course, but it's that's that's Trump's implicit narrative, and it's an implicit narrative which a lot of people are, I think, pretty pretty close to. And if you if your own experience breaks you away from the American exceptionalism, I think then you've got more room to listen to Black people, and that's a and and, and that's a really important that's a really important thing because it, if 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 young you know if if young white people and young Black people communicate about U.S. history, then we're more likely to free ourselves from some of this stuff. Which may make us, you know, the, the exceptionalism stuff, which gives us like this burst of feeling good, but actually holds us back. You know, it, it actually holds us back. I mean, thinking that you're the best is like, thinking that you're the best is the biggest cliche in the world, right? Like yeah. it's the, it's the actually, thinking you're exceptional is the, the least exceptional thing you
2: can actually do. Right. It's a trap. Yeah. Yeah, Exactly. Well, let's jump back and forth a little bit, if you don't mind, between on tyranny and our malady. So, your point there is that just being involved, getting involved in the system, and being strong about that involvement is going to be what ultimately leads to the change. For you in uh, the book, Our Malady, it really seems like your thoughts around our healthcare system really were crystallized by what you ran into in December of 2019. Can you, can you first set it up by talking about that a little bit?
0: Yeah, well, I think the thing that I got wrong, you know, that I think a lot of us get wrong, a lot of Americans, a lot of people, you know, maybe a lot of American men. Um, I think the thing that I got wrong was that I just kind of looked at my own body as a detail. You know, I'm basically, I mean, I've been fortunate. I'm, I've got various things wrong with me, but I'm basically a healthy person. Um, know, I've, I've spent some time in hospitals and things, but I've always felt, you know, I've always felt like I can deal with, I can deal with whatever there is in the world with my body. I've, you know, I've never really hesitated. And then, and then I've, I've, I, I, when I think, when I thought about freedom and I thought about the things that, you know, we ought to have in the world, I didn't, I probably didn't take the body seriously enough. And then there's, then there's that moment where, you know, you're, you're, you're in a bed. And the life is seeping, the, the life is seeping out of you, and you know that's what's happening, and you're aware enough of, the, of what's happening um, to start thinking about it, and and, and, you, and you realize, all right, so there, are, there are other there are other things than you know just 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 my thoughts. There, there's also you know there's also my health, and it's a very simple thing, like it's like the you know the 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 old wisdom of the age old wisdom, right, is that health is what matters. But I think the mistake that I was making and the mistake that we make a lot in this country is not to connect the health and the freedom, you know, in the most basic way. Um, when I was, you know, when I was unconscious or when I was drugged or when I was um, you know, when I had tubes in my body or when I literally couldn't move my limbs, I wasn't free. Right. And that's so simple. It's so simple that we don't even dwell on it. Right. We just to kind of assume that we're we're healthy when we start talking about freedom, but what if we're, what if we're not, and then, you know, then I, I got to thinking, all right, um, what is it about this system which is making so many of us unhealthy so much of the time? I mean, not just the pandemic, but why is American life expectancy going down when, you know, like our, our, our very wealthy, you know, compatriots are talking about immortality. Some people I know well, you know, are, are into immortality. But the fact is that our life expectancy peaked in 2014. And why are so many of us in pain so much of the time? Why are we taking so many painkillers? So I started to think that you can't really do freedom without talking without thinking about the body. And then that led me back to thinking about a number of other things, like like doctors, you know. If if the whole if the whole medical system is commercialized to the point where doctors are basically just doing what the boss tells them to do, then they're not free anymore. And you're, the doctors are kind of people who you want to be free. Like, I mean, you, know, my, you wouldn't like, if you thought like your veterinarian was gonna put your cat down or not, depending upon some financial concern, you'd be horrified, right? You'd think that was terrible. And yet, you know, in the US, we, we bring women into maternity wards or not, depending on financial considerations. I almost died because I was I was expelled from um, the hospital four or five days before I should have been. Why? You know, just money. It's as simple as that. Right. If that happened to your cat, you know, you'd be outraged. But it happens to Americans all the time. And we just kind of think it's normal and we don't connect it to freedom. And that's the thing, that's the place where I think we've got wrong. So what I'm trying to do in the book, I'm starting from this experience that you, you know, but, but I'm working out towards this idea that the thing that happened to me might have some broader relevance that if we were all better situated so that we weren't, we were healthier, but also we weren't so worried about our health. And we didn't think, you know, we didn't think our healthcare depends upon having better insurance than other people, which is a sort of dark secret of the American middle classes. If we were not all in competition about all this stuff, we would also be healthier as a society. We might, it might be easier for us to see each other as Americans if we weren't in competition about all of these things. So that's,
2: that's the basic outline of where it went. But this goes back to the nationalism that we're discussing. You know, your experience is unique. It's different than mine. I, I can't speak for Ed. You know, I've never gone to a hospital in another country. And you have. You've had a child in one country and another one in the United States. And those experiences were so different. And so, you know, we seem to be so stuck in our ways on, you know, our healthcare system is the best in the world, regardless of what the statistics say, regardless of what our life expectancy is, what what direction it's headed in. So talk a little bit about what you've actually experienced when you've been outside the US and the health care that you've received and the health care your, your your family received when your first child was born.
0: Yeah, I will I, mean, I just want to say it makes me sad to talk about these things because I don't you know I don't like to talk about the, the ways that I think America as is letting us down. But this is this is definitely one of them. So if you if you want to talk about birth. I'll give you. The, I mean, the statistics. The statistics are really clear. Um, if if you're an African American woman giving birth in the United States, you would be better off in 70 other countries. And even if you're, and then, and, and but then, let's you know. So it's it's worse for Black women. But if you're if you're a woman in the U.S. and you're pregnant, there are 40 other countries that you should go to if you want to survive giving birth. 40, at least, counting conservatively. And that's just that's not the way it ought to be. So um, as I said, like the, the experience of the experience of almost dying and starting to think about these things in the beginning got me thinking again about birth and, and the differences between the US. and other places. I guess the main difference that comes to mind is that is time. like our first child was born in Austria, and this there was just more time for everything. So you know there was in the u.s., they try to keep women out of um, the obstetrical ward for as, as, as long as they can. They keep them out of maternity as long as they can. You call them up and you say, you know, not you, right? Because it's never going to happen to us, right? This is, a, this is one of these, this is interesting, right? Because this is, a, this is a, a, a women's issue, but it's all about, I mean, this is basic to how well we're all going to live. You call up and you say, my contractions are, you know, my contractions are 10 minutes apart. And they say, stay home, you know. My contractions are eight minutes apart. Stay home. You're not supposed to come into your contractions are three or four minutes apart. And the only reason that's true is just because it's expensive to have you in that bed. So they're trying to keep you out of that bed, which is why American women give birth in taxi cabs or at home. And it's wise. It's why one of the reasons why women and their children die in Austria, you know, if you're, if you're having contractions, they say, come in and you come in and they say, stay and you stay until you give birth. And then, in the U.S., after you give birth, bang, they want you out of there. I mean, this is something, you know, I've spent a little more time in hospitals than I would really like to have done. But just, you know, I'm in a local hospital in the U.S., and I see these women coming out. You know, they have their tiny baby, and they're still in wheelchairs. And I think, you know, they just shouldn't be coming out yet. They should be in there for a few more days. They don't look ready to leave. But in the U.S., they want you out the next day. Bang. And, we're, and that means... The women don't learn how to breastfeed and like, okay, that's another, that's another, that seems like another female issue, but that's, that's for everybody because it's good to breastfeed. It's good for the woman. It's good for the child. You know, it's good for the coming generation of Americans. But if you're, if you're kicked right out of the hospital, you you may not learn how to breastfeed and you're also, if there's something wrong with you, which there very often is, it might go unnoticed and then you might get sick and you know, that's bad. So whereas in Austria, you, you, you stay for four days you stay in the hospital you give birth you stay for four days 96 hours and then the nurses teach you how to breastfeed and the nur- and you know like it sounds totally hokey and corny right but I, but it was great um you know like did you know how to change a diaper like are we born knowing i didn't know how to change a diaper but like the the nurses get, taught us how to change diapers and i was like okay did you know did you know how to you know i didn't know how to wash a baby right but during those four days the nurses taught us how to wash babies like all this stuff which is really good which we really should know um and then time the big time okay in the us like who has paternity leave i mean besides like super super rich guys um i was i did birthing class in in vienna which was hilarious and great and i made some and i made friends with the other guys and they were talking about, you know, their paternity and maternity leave, maternity and paternity leave. And they and their, their partners had two years to mess around with. Two years, two years. And, and so it was like, OK, is my wife going to take 18 months and me six or maybe, I'll, maybe we'll go together for a while? They had two years to mess around with. Right. And here I thought, like, I was in a good I was in good shape because my wife had three months, which by American standards is really good. You know, so I thought, you know, here we are. We've got three months. And these guys were like, they were actually going to have time. I mean, not just the moms, but the dads were going to have time with their kids. And that's, you know, that totally changes the shape of your life. I mean, and it also totally changes the shape of the baby's life because it means the baby actually gets to hang around with its parents when they're young and it changes, you know, and, the, and one thing I noticed was like, it, you know, it means that, that guys walking around town with their really small kids becomes normal. And I thought that, you know, that's kind of cool. Right. That like, cause they have, and, and once what some guys are doing it, then other guys can do it because you can. Right. And then, and, and then you start to, and you start to see it and it becomes, it becomes normal. So time is the main thing. You're not rushed. You don't have this feeling that you've got to get, that you've got to get out. And that's, you know, that's, I mean, that birth, birth, this is especially dramatic because life is literally at stake. But that's the that's main issue. That's how I feel the difference in, in American hospitals and European hospitals. I might be annoyed at European hospitals. They, they make mistakes too. But I never feel like they're just trying to get me out. I never feel like, they're, I never, like there's a part of my brain which activates in American hospitals, which tries to think, okay, is this about the money or is this about the medicine? But in, 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 in European hospitals, that part of my brain is nice and quiet. You know, I don't, I don't, I don't worry about that.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's, it's very complicated. You know, m- m- markets work, you know, because of the incentives inherent to them. But in the healthcare uh, system, they really markets break down. It goes off the rails because you don't have a choice. Nobody knows what anything costs. Nobody asks what anything costs because insured, if you're insured, it's paying for it. Um, people have no idea. And when you need medication, when you need a doctor's care, um, you know there's just the, the market incentives break down. You'll pay whatever you would pay for whatever you needed to, um, and it's very depressing to think about you know how broken it is.
0: I mean, I would so I'm gonna I'm gonna I'm gonna go back to my cat analogy. Um, like there, if 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 you thought that. Your, 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 your veterinary hospital was owned by a private equity firm and the, that private equity firm didn't care at all about the health of your cat. It just was interested in expensive diseases that your cat might have or it's interested in giving your cat hip implants because you can make a lot of money off hip implants. You'd be outraged, right? You'd be outraged. You wouldn't go to that veterinary. You would go to some different veterinary hospital. But in U.S. hospitals, that's just happened, It just happened. You know, why do we do so many implants? They're not really such a great thing. Actually, they kill a lot of people, but they're really, they make a lot of money and why don't we do basic hygiene very well? Because there's not a lot of money to be made in basic hygiene. What, you know, why don't we, why don't we make antibiotics? We clearly need antibiotics, but the big, the big pharma companies are no longer researching antibiotics because why? Because of antibiotic resistance, I mean, this is like this is a market thing. It's totally rational. The problem is antibiotic resistance. That's why we need more antibiotics. But you shouldn't really, maybe you shouldn't invest in new antibiotics because if you do, there's just going to be resistance to them. So let's just forget about it. And that literally means that market forces are on the side of the bacteria, and not on the side of the of the people. And so, you know, I I like markets. I appreciate how markets work. Um, I think the real question is. Where you draw the line between where you have markets and where you and where you don't have markets, or where you right. mix a market with something with you know with another principle, and you know medicine, the idea that you know medicine starts from an ethic. The ethic is that you don't let people die, and that's not the same thing as a market. It would be it's it would you can make a lot of money letting people die. In fact, and unfortunately, that's the way we're headed. Um, but if you think the market is the only source of behavior, you're gonna you're gonna you're you're not gonna gonna end up having healthcare. But I would, agreeing with everything you said, I would push the point a little bit further. I mean, I think the problem is that if you want to be a free person, your your body can't be the subject of market forces, right? It shouldn't be the subject of market forces, you're, you're, that your body is you. And so it, it, your body shouldn't be a widget. It, right. it should be not thinking in those ways. Like it shouldn't be that when I go into a hospital – the first calculation is okay. Is this it, it, can we make money from this widget or not money from this widget? And I think that's like that's the kind of thing we've got we've got wrong. We don't actually like we. There should be a force field around our bodies which says okay th- these things are not widgets. This yeah. is not a bowling ball. This is not a packet of baseball cards. You know this is not something that we buy or sell. This is us. And if we don't have that idea, it's really hard to have rights.
1: Yeah, markets mostly work, but I think. For those of us who believe in markets, and um, in, in terms of framing the, this the, this public conversation, I think you have to be prepared to acknowledge where they break down, where it just doesn't work. Because if you want to credibly defend capitalism, credibly defend a free market system, you have to have the intellectual honesty to to look at it, uh, circumstances where it really breaks down and it doesn't work.
0: Mm-hmm. I think you also, I mean, I think also have to ask the larger question, why are you defending it? Okay. So, I mean, I, I, so I'm not going to defend capitalism because it's capitalism. Why, do I, why should I care about capitalism as such? I don't see why anyone, I, I, I care about people and their lives. I care about their freedom, right? But maybe a market in some areas is going to make people more prosperous and freer than great. But if a market in other areas makes people less prosperous and less free, I'd see no reason why I should defend it, right? I mean, I think, you know, where I think Americans get caught up is this idea that once you start defending markets, you have to be totally consistent about it and defend them in all things. And then if it doesn't work, you just say, oh, well, that's too bad. (laughs) Whereas I would say, well, no, the reason we defend markets is because we think markets work for us. That we're we're what matters, right? Like the people matter. The market is an abstraction. You know, the market. The market works well for us. That's great. But if it, but if it's killing us, which it can be, right? I mean, the market can literally kill people. We we had a free market in slaves once. That was a bad thing. You know, if you you free market a free market in livers would be a bad thing. You know, I mean, my my liver was infected, and I was of, You know, I was thinking like, oh well, you know. So would, it, would it be great if like if, if, if poor people then could be, be killed for their livers? Obviously not. Right. So it's it's we, we have to be able to say, like, the market is good for the things it's good for. But ultimately, it's good because it serves things that we, we agree about that we think are important.
1: Yeah. I mean, that's my point. You, you, you know, market systems work. And the maximizing economic freedom works for people and it's elevated people out of pro- poverty, but you can't be so dogmatic about it where you can't, where, where you're not, unable to recognize there are places where it doesn't work, where where the logic breaks down. And rather than just defending it for the sake of defending it, as you point out, you have to be able to be honest enough to say, well, in this area it doesn't work. It's breaking down, and we need to figure out a way to help people accomplish what they want to do or take care of people in a different way.
2: What, you well, had this uh, this quote, um, Well, you have a section in your book where you talk about the market of pain management and opioid use and what uh, has become of that and the abuse that existed. You quote in both Ohio and in Pennsylvania, and what those voters went out and did. And again, I, I I found this sentence to be such a an interesting intersection between the two books talked about how counties that had opioid issues in Ohio and Pennsylvania Mm -hmm. had gone out and supported Trump. And you say desperate voters close off care to themselves, their families, and everyone else by voting for politicians who traffic in pain. Isn't that one of the real side doors that that, that all of this seems to slip out, which is that they've used this market and those people who traffic in pain can then abuse this market to get voters to actually vote against their own health.
0: Yeah. I mean, that's, I, I like, I like the idea of a side door. That's, that's, that's really well put. I mean, pain is, pain is part, pain is part of life and, you know, when we talk about markets and democracy, we don't usually start by, by talking about suffering, but suffering is suffering is a big is a big part of life and suffering can be a political resource. You know, the kinds of politics that we like are the kinds where people say, hey, let's make some let's make some rules so that we can all do better, you know, but then there's another, there's another kind of politics which says, hey, you're suffering. I bet we can make somebody else suffer more than you. Or hey, you're suffering. I bet that makes you vulnerable to this kind of argument that I'm about to make. And I'm afraid that, you know, both of those things work. It's just a question of which one you like better. You know, I like better the kind of politics where you make rules and things and we build things together and, and everyone has a stake. But but the kind of politics where you say, hey, you're suffering, I'm going to make you suffer more, or I'm going to make you suffer now a little bit, and then a little bit less, and a little bit more, and I'm going to get into your head that way and manipulate you, that also works. You know, and it's it's, it's, it's working in this country. Um, and it, go, it goes back to health. You know, why, this is your question, why, why don't we have health care in this country? Why does the woman working at the cash register in the grocery store have in, in Austria have better health care than almost all Americans? Why? Why is that? And why does she not even think about it? <laughs> why does she just take it for granted? And it's, it partly has to do with this pain, this trafficking in pain. Our pol- or Some of our politicians will tell white people, hey, you're suffering, but if we try to help you, we'll just end up helping those black people. And that becomes a kind of sadism because you think, okay, I'm suffering, but those other people are going to suffer more and they deserve it because they're not hardworking the way I am. And then that's a downward spiral you know, and then you, then you don't have policy and then you lose your own health care. And you, but the thing that really breaks my heart is you lose the things that your children need, right? Like it's one thing to say, okay, I don't want health care. You know, I'm going to die at 45, whatever. It's another thing to say, I'm going to do away with these institutions that make it possible for my kids or other people's kids to grow up healthily, you know, because I mean, the place, bringing the questions together a little bit, the, the, the place where the one place where the market just does not work at all is small children. We, no, no sane person would say, hey, let's let the small children go out into a world of competition. Let's see how those two year olds do with, with they're just left on their own to compete. Right. That's crazy. Um, You need, you know, you need, you need support and you need families to raise children and the families need support to raise children well. And so I find it heartbreaking when Americans get all dogmatic about this stuff and they say, well, you know, I'm going to, it's normal for everybody to be suffering because maybe you're an adult and you think that, but at the end, you know, the, the people who suffer most from that are the children
2: and then you can't undo that later on. You have uh, a prescription here though, for uh, your readers, which is that it's a a three-step process, which is that healthcare is a right, uh, make time for young children and put doctors in charge. And so uh, I found the book, um, I really appreciated how honest you were with your own journey, but it's hopeful. It doesn't simply outline the issues. It uh, directs us toward what options already exist in the world today. It also articulated that Americans have gone around the world to other countries to say that healthcare is a right, but then it has a prescription on what changes we can make and how we can look at this differently.
0: Yeah. I mean, that's, that's, the, that's the thing. You know, it was, I mean, I, I've, been, I've been pretty miserable in a bunch of hospitals and the, the book is about the time when I was most miserable in a, in a couple of particular American hospitals. And you know, it's it was just awful. I mean, not not just the not just the part where I thought, I, you know, I might not survive it, but just the kind of tawdriness of it, and the inefficiency of it, and the uh, the untruths, and the poor management, and and everything. It was just it was just a, a wreckage of a moment. But I, I can't help but have the feeling that we're not actually that very far away from having a system that works a lot better, because our doctors are in fact good. Our nurses are, 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 are good. I mean, we, we have, there are good people in the system, but the system, it's the system that's a wreck. And because I've been inside other systems, which aren't a wreck, I I know that it can be done. Um, I know that you can feel much better inside a healthcare system than we feel inside the American healthcare system. And then I just, I also can't help, you know, having this kind of patriotic belief that we, we, if we can identify the problem, we can also solve it. I mean, I think part of part of our issue here is a kind of lack of imagination. We just think this is what this is what healthcare is like. You know, just how we can only maybe we could you know maybe we could have ten million people more insured than we do now, but this is the basic deal. Whereas I don't think this is the basic deal. I I, I think that if I think if they can do it in if 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 they can do it in um, you know Poland, <laughs> if they can do it. You know, if if countries that were under communism until nineteen eighty nine now have longer lifespans than we do, you know, wow, I think we can probably do whatever it is that they're 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 doing. You know, if Slovenia can do it, we I
2: think I think we can also do it. The book is Our Malady, written by Professor Timothy Snyder. Timothy, thank you so much for your time today. This has been an absolutely fascinating discussion. Yeah, thank you, Professor. Thanks. Ple- Pleasure is mine. Really glad I could do it. Well, that was uh, actually, that was what I had hoped it would be because you had come to me and talked to me about that quote that inspired you to connect with him and who he was, which is right. about our institutions and making sure that we
1: protect them. Even if our opponents, if we dis- even if we disagree, that's right. Even if we disagree, what we should have is common ground on the arena in which we play and the protection of the institutions that secure everyone's liberties and rights. Look, I've become a real fan of this book. You know, I carry around a copy of the, I keep a copy of the constitution in my home in my car and in the office, a little pocket constitution. And I feel like this book on tyranny is something that I want to like, you know, have close uh, to me as well from time to time, because I've underlined so many passages in it that have just blown me away. And um, it just really makes you think deeply about our society, um, and hopeful maybe that more and more people, um, will, will come around to understanding what, what's really important. You know, maybe I'll close with one quote that I have here that I just happened to have open, um, which I think speaks to what we're facing and the responsibility that every citizen has to, you know, accept objective reality, um. And he he writes, you submit to tyranny when you renounce the difference between what you want to hear and what is actually the case. This renunciation of reality can feel natural and pleasant, but the result is your demise as an individual and thus the collapse of any political system that depends upon individualism. Yeah, that's, that's the perfect way to end it. You know, as someone who has spent his
2: life in marketing, there is a pleasure that people can have to believing a narrative that is not based in any factual reality, but makes them feel good. And at the end of the day, by believing that narrative, you have weakened your own voice and you have lost the power of your vote.
1: Yeah. People believe the lies that comfort them more than the truth that challenges them.
2: This is The Head and the Heart. Thank you for listening. Be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts and Podcast One. Don't forget to rate and leave a review. And also, we'd love to hear from you and what subjects you'd like to make sure we cover.